It's good to be back with you this morning. Little ones up through grade four can go to junior church now if they'd like. You are welcome to keep them with you, too. All right, we love kids. We have lots of them, and we love them to be where you are. So you feel free. Whatever you're up to today, you do, okay? If you're up to them going to junior church, send them down there. If you're up to keeping them with you, keep them up here. Put a smile on your face. You know, uh, we sing that, that first song by Fee, you know, um, Oh, Happy Day. And I was looking out there and thinking, man, some of you guys need a IV of coffee or something. I don't know what's going on with that. But uh, anyway, put a smile on your face. We're together in the house of the Lord rejoicing. You know, the Lord could come back this morning and you would go straight from church to heaven and forever have that bragging right, okay? Because some of your friends are traveling today, aren't they? And they would go from the beach to heaven or they would go from, you know, a cabin in the mountains to heaven. But you would go from church to heaven and that, you know, that's going to follow you. I'm telling you, I'm just thinking that's going to be a good thing. So where were you on the day Christ came back from the church? Oh, I was in church, actually. So uh, that's a good thing. Anyway, turn your Bibles to... Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, if you would. Special thank you uh, in our absence, of course, over the last several weeks to um, John Sandow. Of course, a blessing to me, a brother in Christ, to love him to death. And he uh, filled the pulpit twice. He's such a dear saint and, and uh, such an encouragement to me. And I trust his wisdom so much and just so grateful that he can fill. Daniel Wisby, same way, filled exactly the same about him. Both brothers in Christ, very dear. Um, their, their thoughts, their wisdom, uh, very, very important to me. And so I'm grateful that they can fill and you get the benefit of that. And then having Eli back and uh, just a dear friend of ours. And we just love him and his family as their commitment to take the gospel where it's not named. And uh, it's just a, uh, encouraging and very refreshing, again, to have uh, such dear people with us to remind us of the things that are important. And so uh, I'm grateful the church has that benefit of many godly men who can fill the pulpit and fill Sunday school classes and teach you and encourage you and equip you uh, and so that you are ready and prepared for every good work. And so uh, very grateful to the Lord for his, his, uh, his generous hand here. We're in a continued study uh, that we've been absent from for a while, so we'll do a little bit of review today uh, that will help us kind of get our thoughts circled around these things again. Um, God's plan for a healthy church, you know this, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're in the second Second uh, Corinthians now, insufficiency is the title of our message, in particular a key to being useful to God. And so um, I'd like you to turn to Second Corinthians 2 verse 12, and we're going to open by reading our passage today, the whole thing. It should be very familiar to us by now, uh, but I want to read, it's been a while since we've been there, and so I want to read it together with you. You can read from your copy of God's Word. You can find the same translation I'm reading from in the pew in front of you. Or just read from the one that you constantly read through and memorize, and I'll give you verse cues, we'll stay together. A reminder, of course, too, again, over and over again, to be in the Word each day. It's how the Lord planned for you to be nourished, to hold up that holy standard in front of you constantly, that you might see what His requirements are, that you might also be able to worship Him throughout the course of your week in all His provision. Uh, the blessings He has given you greatly and, and, and wonderfully from His hand, you see those in the Word each day, it brings your heart uh, to worship and to adoration. And so then when we get together today, uh, you're not starving. You're coming in fully fed, and we do today uh, what you've been doing all through the week anyway. And so that's the way the Lord works. That's how his Holy Spirit is, is, is very clear to you and how he'd like you to conduct yourselves and all of us. He has one will, and so if we're in his word, we'll know what that is. So verse 12, chapter 2. Paul is speaking here and, and talking about some past things, and we're going to learn as we've seen it already, as we get into 2 Corinthians, we see a shift in Paul's uh, approach to teaching. We really see a revealing of his own heart, how he deals with certain things 
First Corinthians, we saw a lot of admonition. We saw a lot of correction. Uh, just says, this is what you were doing. This is what you need to do. Those kinds of things. Paul here has shifted in his approach a little bit as he deals with the church. And he's, we see his heart, and you're going to see that today. So look at verse 12. Uh, now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. Verse 16, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? Verse 17, for we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything, as coming from ourselves, but our ad adequacy is from God. Verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's stop right there. That's where we've made our break, where Paul tends to, is shifting his focus after verse 6. But we've noted uh, when we introduce this passage that we live in a culture that has an overgrown sense of human ability. You don't have to circle in the culture too often Particularly if you're a teacher, you know this very well because we have a whole generation that has been raised up under the uh, uh, understanding that they are perfect in every way, the children are, and that uh, their self-esteem is most important to parents. And so they come into the classrooms thinking they know everything and can do everything, and anybody else who disagrees with them uh, must be of a lesser understanding. We see that in the culture today. We see it in a lot of the uh, debate that goes on even in our government and around uh, the topics that are hot today. Uh, no one can... No one can hear someone else's differing approach to, to a topic without uh, thinking somehow that person is inferior and just switching to an ad hominem argument and just calling them stupid. And so uh, we see that over and over and over. And I think it, our culture just manifests this overgrown sense of, of uh, human ability, overconfidence in thoughts, overconfidence in opinions, overconfidence in ability. Um, if you've coached at all, you know that many of the athletes that come in have an, an overgrown opinion of their own ability. And it makes it very difficult even to teach them the, the, the basics, perhaps, of the, the, what they've missed because they think they already know everything. And so it's so, it's so uh, wonderful to come to an athlete who's very coachable and, uh, and then be able to develop them and, and go back and fix things. But we, we don't see that that often. We see a lot of uh, overconfidence. And so, unfortunately, uh, that overconfidence can make its way from the world uh, into ministry. So, in other words, someone will come in with a whole bunch of abilities in the world, able to do certain things, and all of a sudden think that that translates into um, something in the church that will automatically be uh, profitable. And so Paul, in his approach to the church in our more recent letter where he reveals his heart to them, uh, is going to teach them and address this issue from his own perspective. And so we saw last time that, uh, you know, and confidence is not all bad. I mean, in, in the scriptures we see that we can have absolute confidence when it comes to facing death. We don't have to worry that perhaps we don't know, you know, a progressive church uh, 
idea that there's not, no way we can possibly understand the scriptures well enough to definitively say this is what it says. That's, that's, that's baloney. We, we can understand the clarity of the scriptures and, and we can have absolute confidence with facing death and facing God and divine judgment and sins held against you. You come in uh, to those things as a believer, you can have confidence that the, what the word says about that is true. But we understand that none of those confidences are based on our own power or our own accomplishments. Uh, we, we don't bring anything in from the world to the table that can give us confidence in ministry. And Paul, Paul had an interesting thing to say about confidence and self-sufficiency in, first, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says this, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, so he's setting himself off apart from the Jews who, who would consider themselves, as Jason read earlier uh, today, uh, who would consider themselves a circumcision set apart by men's hands to God and somehow thinking that God owed them some uh, obligation because of who they were. Paul says, we're the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and in this part, and put no confidence in the flesh. As a part over to the Jew who would have confidence in the fact that he had the law and that uh, the prophets were his relatives and that uh, he had, um, uh, had circumcision, uh, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And uh, so as Paul evaluated himself, there was always this overarching dependency and insufficiency uh, that was so apparent. As Paul understood his life as a believer, he could say, when it comes to salvation or the work that God wants to do through us, there's no room uh, for self-sufficiency. And we're going to see that over and over again as we work our way through these passages. And so um, we're going to see really, I think, this key, one of the keys to being useful to God begins by regarding ourselves as insufficient to the task. In other words, as you approach that ministry, you have to understand that apart from the Lord's power in you, you're going to have no success for the eternal kingdom. Uh, it should, it, as you think about ministry, you should be thinking, I'm not sufficient to accomplish anything for, of eternal value apart from the Lord working through me. And we're going to see that over and over again as we go through these passages. And remember, you know, usefulness and glory in ministry is not in declaring that you're insufficient, okay? Not by somehow you say, I'm, I'm insufficient, that's where the glory is. If somehow, like somehow parading around saying that I'm, I can't do it, is somehow worthy of glory. That's not it. What really is it, I think, and the, the thing that Paul wants us to understand here, if we understand his heart, is the sufficiency of Jesus, which is discovered in the reality of your insufficiency and our weakness. So rightly understanding that you don't have the power to accomplish anything of eternal nature because you've been working it and you understand that apart from Christ and apart from your prayer time and time in the word, that there's not going to be anything that's going to accomplish, uh, accomplish for eternal value. So uh, as we, you know, worked our way through the passage, we, we'll have noticed a number of general handholds now as Paul begins to drive that point home. And uh, the first thing that we saw in Paul's weakness and insufficiency, we see that he is sufficient in Christ's leadership. And that's chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Now, as we looked at that section, uh, I want to remind you, there's a marvelous illustration just a bit further down, along in the letter. And, and we're going to get there and look at it more closely in the future. But what I want to do is... Is, real, is, is share it with you right now. So it's, it's in verse, it's chapter 12, verse 7. So just hold your finger here and flip over, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Here we're going to find an illustration that hammers home this important principle on effectiveness better than any extra-biblical illustration that I could find. So I just started with it, knowing that we're going to get here, and there'll be plenty more that we can say about it. But in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 12, verse 7, Paul is referring here, now just to lay some context, Paul is referring here to a time when he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, just in general, without going into it in depth, we will later, but the Bible speaks of that way of heaven, highest heavens, third heaven, heavens, and, and the earth, that kind of thing, often. It typically indicating general locations. And uh, first heaven 
is the sky and the clouds and the atmosphere. So when we see about, when we think about heaven, and we're talking about the first heaven, and particularly in Genesis we see this, but we can see the sky, the clouds, the atmosphere, that's the first heaven. Second heaven, typically in the scriptures, is the place we would consider space. So that's planets, that's uh, moon, stars, etc., the sun, places where they travel. That's the second heaven. The highest heaven, or the third heaven, is the place where God's glory and his presence dwell, where the temple not made by hands is located. So several different heavens, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. The third heaven is the place where God is, okay? So Paul appears to be talking about himself, and he's talking about an incident about 14 years prior. That's verse 2. You can see that. And it's hard to pinpoint the situation when this occurred because Paul records a number of visions that he was allowed to see. But it, it may have been, and this is my personal belief, that the vision occurred in Acts 14 where Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra and they're doing ministry and the Jews from Antioch and Iconium come and, and went over the crowd. And Acts 14, 19 says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead. Now you probably remember reading that, so I'll just refer to it right here and without going in depth, we will next time. But, but so perhaps this is the situation uh, maybe not, you can't really be dogmatic, but Paul is, is out for a while. So he is stoned, he looks like he's dead, he gets dragged out of the city, um, and he's out for a while, and, and his disciples thought he was dead. And then all of a sudden he stands up and he goes back into the city. So he's laying there, people think he's dead, the disciples are mourning because of his death. Uh, those from Iconium and, and uh, Antioch are, are rejoicing because they finally did away with this, uh, this difficult man. And so... This is probably a likely place for this vision to happen. But during this revelation, this vision, he sees some things that perhaps no one else has been able to see. And, and we see this statement. Now look at verse 7 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Because of the surpassing greatness, see where I am, of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So two times he says this. So he says, I saw this this wonderful revelation. And for that reason, first time he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So, um, in other words, because what I saw was so extraordinary that uh, I could be um, very arrogant about it and overconfident and getting a big head about what I know and what I saw and whatever, I was given a gift of a disability to keep me in touch with the reality of my insufficiency. And so, and I think it's safe to point out here, as we read that passage, the very counterproductive self-sufficiency attitude really is, how counterproductive that is. Because if Paul was, having, was given this, this uh, disability in order to keep him from getting a big head, in order to keep him from ha being very confident as he came into the ministry, then I think that should tell us just how important it is, uh, our attitude as we come into, uh, into things that are eternal. So Paul, was, Paul required such a drastic curve on his pride, how much more than we. So God intervened in Paul's life in a very personal, a very painful way to ensure that Paul would understand that ministry effectiveness is found in insufficiency and is found in inadequacy. Now, Paul didn't learn the lesson easily, which is some comfort to me and perhaps to you. Okay, so how do I know he didn't learn it easily? Well, he says... Uh, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So not just once, and not just any time at all, knowing it came from the Lord, he was, uh, it was obvious that the Lord had done it. Paul knew right away it was the Lord's hand in it, and yet he implored the Lord uh, three times to, that it might leave him. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now, it doesn't say this, 
But I suppose that each time Paul asked for the restraint to be removed, the Lord responded in the same way. Uh, because he said, I asked three times, and then Paul says, and the Lord said that to me. And I'm guessing it would have occurred along in the way of ministry. You know, different locations, perhaps, uh, different circumstances. Well, Paul could say, you know, Lord, could, could you take this, this weakness away from me? And then the Lord would respond, you know, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Yes, yes, I, I understand that, Lord, you know, but could you take it away? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Okay, I understand what you're telling me. But I would feel a lot better about myself if I had a little self-confidence, okay? I mean, you know, self-esteem, confident in who I am. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So perhaps that went along that way, perhaps not. Paul obviously didn't learn the lesson very quickly. He had to ask three times. And finally, he gets to the point where he surrenders after all of that asking and experiencing Christ's sufficiency, and he realizes that the weakness uh, he has becomes the channel of God's power. And he says then, verse 9, he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And verse 10 really sums up his experience and his sure knowledge. And, and I would like to point out, so Paul gets to the point, says, Most gladly, therefore, then, will I rather boast about my weaknesses. So Paul doesn't say he's just resigned himself to it. He doesn't say, well, you know, begrudgingly, I will go ahead and go along with this, but, you know, I'm lodging a complaint or whatever it is, I still have some malice here, Lord, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do what you say because you're more powerful than I am. None of that, he says, most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I'll boast about the fact that I can't do this apart from what Christ has done. There's never gonna be anything that Paul, in his sufficiency, accomplished this. He's gonna be the opposite. And then verse 10 really sums up that experience and his sure knowledge, and, I, and I'd like to point out that this is really the centerpiece of our current passage. And we're gonna see this throughout this letter, but this, this is the most important assimilation of knowledge we can have for all effectual service. Here it is. For when I am weak, what? What is it, beloved? When I am weak, then I am strong. If you're going to assimilate anything about effectual service, something that's going to last forever, ministry work, you're going to have to assimilate this. Because if there's one thing that resonates with all of Paul's ministry, and arguably the, the most effective evangelist that has ever lived, planted the most churches, had the most impact on people, the most impact on the church since that time with all of his letters, we have to understand that this must be important. So we have to affirm this in our heart and understand, listen, this, this is how it's going to have to work. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I'm not, I don't want to put too large of an exclamation point on the statement, but I don't think it's too hard to realize, and mark this, beloved, that failing to assimilate that truth will be why some of us will never be useful to God. Because we war against that so much. That's why some of us will never be useful, because we have to be sufficient in ourselves. Or we have to look like we are. And I think that we can say, perhaps, we are more than any other place stamped in the world's image here more than any other place uh, in our lives. You know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and through 3, and we looked at this at length when we went through Romans, so if you were with us, you know this passage very well. But Paul says this, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, because of the mercies of God, and you know that we went through the first 11 chapters of Romans and talked about your position in Christ and how that all works, and then 
once you understand who you are in Christ and how you're supposed to act starts in chapter 12. And he says, so therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, so he calls on all the things that we just got through saying, uh, he just got through saying in the first 11 chapters, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I won't go through all, there's so much we could say, we could spend several messages just on this. I won't. Verse two, and do not be conformed to this world, so don't be stamped in its image but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that, and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then, beloved, catch this, because what's the first thing he says after he gets through saying that? In verse 3 he says, For through the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, what? Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. The very first thing he says when he gets through with all 11 chapters about who you are in Christ, and then he says, okay, this is how you're supposed to act in Christ, and he gets through saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and by that, you're going to know what God wants you to do. And then the very first admonition he gives them is what? Don't think of yourselves more highly than you should think. The very first thing has to do with self-sufficiency, doesn't it? A, a believing something about yourself that isn't true, Okay or is ineffective considering what you're applying yourself to. You know, so eschew an exaggerated opinion of your own sufficiency and of your own ability. Get rid of that. C.S. Lewis's book, for The Four Loves, hits it on the head. He says this, quote, Those like myself who imagine, whose imagination far exceeds their obedience are subject to a just penalty. Lewis says this, We easily imagine conditions far higher than any we have really reached if we describe what we have imagined, we may make others and make ourselves believe that we've really been there, end quote. I mean, it's like the first thing we do, right? We imagine that we've been higher and done more than we actually have, and then we tell others about it, and we make ourselves believe that that's actually the case. Paul says, listen, first step after you understand who you are in Christ and present your body as a living sacrifice is don't think of yourselves more highly than you should. Because that's going to be the key to being ineffective in ministry if you're thinking of yourselves more highly than you should. And Paul really rallies all of us out of our imaginations and, and focuses us back on being useful for eternal things. And we will see over and over again in Paul's statements that if dependency is the goal, beloved, then inadequacy and weakness are advantages. If dependency is the goal, then inadequacy and weaknesses are advantages. And he starts by showing that in his weaknesses and his insufficiency in that he is sufficient in Christ's leadership. Look at verse 12 of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 2. Would you back to verse 12? And, and then, you know, let's look at the situation where Paul could proclaim God's sufficiency in Christ's leadership through his insufficiency. Look at verse 12, if you would. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, see where we are? And when a door was opened for me in the Lord... Verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So Paul's kind of recounting his journey. And in the revealing of his own heart and his attitude and what was going on, we get to see what it looks like to be insufficient. Okay? So, I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. When a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So Paul knows that he has done all he can do physically as a minister to deal with this rebellion and disrespect and sinfulness of this church in Corinth. He had sent a severe letter. Titus had delivered it. Titus hadn't returned. And so Paul went looking for him, and he arrives in Troas, and Paul describes it this way. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, that's what he says. So Paul knows he's insufficient to the task of bringing about any change in the church in Corinth. So he's sufficient then in Christ's leadership. He's just going to follow and do what Christ wants. And he just follows Jesus in the foundational work of the ministry. And so let's sum up some of the things that we've seen as a review. First thing, first principle in insufficiency, okay? 
The insufficiency will always be looking at Jesus' plan for the propagation of the gospel, because that hasn't changed. So regardless of Paul feeling like he was completely ineffective in changing the heart attitude of this Corinthian church, he understands that God's plan for uh, the Great Commission, that hasn't changed. That's still a command. And he just reaffirms his faithfulness to his calling. He feels out of control of Corinth, but it doesn't change what he does in Troas. He just goes, and, and, and we saw the rest of part, and, and then this, this next part of Paul's in, uh, sufficiency in Christ's leadership, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. When a door was opened for me in the Lord. So, number two, number one, insufficiency, it's always looking to Jesus' plan for the propagation of the gospel. So when you don't know what to do, you just continue to share the gospel. That's, that's God's plan. That's still for you to do. You know, you're not in charge of, of making change happen. You're not in charge of forcing the church to do anything, your little group to do anything. You, know, you can't make people switch over and be spiritual. You can't do any of that. You can do what you're supposed to do, and then you continue to do what that Great Commission tells you to do. And this number two, we saw that when you regard yourself as insufficient, you watch for the Lord to cause things to happen. You're not trying to force things to happen. The Lord opens those doors. He's still in the business of doing that very thing. Paul done all he could do physically in the ministry to Corinth, but Jesus was sufficient for Paul to continue to open the doors of ministry. Now look at verse 13. He goes and he says, I had no rest, I had no rest for my spirit. And that's no surprise to Paul. We've seen that over and over again, haven't we? And, and certainly no change for the norm for him, but principle number three remains unchanged really throughout the ages. You should expect adversity, you should expect difficulty when you do the work of the Lord. You should expect that to happen. Um, we wouldn't have to have all the books Paul wrote, we wouldn't have to have all Timothy's letters, we wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have to have letters to Timothy, letters to Titus, we wouldn't have Peter's letters if there wasn't trouble when ministry occurs, okay? So understand that the New Testament letters were written because difficulty, okay? To deal with adversity, to deal with hardship. And so we should already expect it. I think we, sometimes we get into ministry and the first time we have a little bit of resistance, a little bit of difficulty, somebody resists you, somebody says something about it, and that's it. You would just want to give up. Well, it must not have been the Lord's will. You know? And it's just so easy to be discouraged in that area if you don't understand that this is the norm. Being insufficient to the task of ministry allows the Lord here to give you his heart for ministry. You're not going to have rest in your spirit. There will be a broken heart for the lost. There's going to be a burdened heart for those who stray. That's always going to be there. You may not be able to, to change the circumstances of, of the ministry that you're in, but there's always going to be that broken heart. Christ's leadership will be sufficient to give you a burden for the kingdom. It's going to be sufficient to teach you to continue to propagate the gospel. It's going to be sufficient uh, for you to watch for the Lord to cause things to happen. It's going to be sufficient for that heart for ministry. Uh, you know, if you think about Paul, he goes to Troas. It must have been pretty difficult to put sermons together in Troas when he's, you know, when he's thinking about why Titus hasn't come back. When he's thinking about that severe letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, and we haven't seen Titus yet, and that is kind of how it is most of the time. In ministry, things going on on every side doesn't look like any of it's amounting to much. You know, you're kind of investing, 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 and you're not really seeing a whole, what you would hope to be is the result. But Paul concentrated on each task. He knew it was the Lord's sufficiency. The Lord opened the door. He knew it was an opportunity. And so if there was going to be anything accomplished eternally, it was going to be the Lord doing it through Paul. So there wasn't a surprise. There was some difficulty. Now look at the rest of verse 13. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Number four, fourth principle that we saw. When we know we are insufficient in ourselves for ministry, it's easy to feel like a failure. It's easy to feel like a failure. I mean, if you look at the ministry, you don't know what's going on in the hearts of people. You don't, want to, you don't know what's going on in the hearts of the church. You don't know, you don't know anything about that. 
All you know is what you're supposed to do. And it's easy to feel like a failure if you're just looking at yourself and thinking, I should be sufficient to do this. But Jesus is sufficient to redeem any circumstance. There are no wasted journeys, no wasted heartache, no wasted difficulty. He leaves Troas, his heart's burdened. He can't even concentrate on the ministry there, even though he, 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 there was much teaching we saw. He, gave a, he, he encouraged them, and yet you know, he leaves there. His heart's burdened. There's, there's good ministry there, but he moves on to Macedonia. He hasn't caught up with Titus yet. He's worried about the Corinthian church. He probably feels a bit like he just failed everybody, but he goes there, and he's looking for Titus, and Acts 20, verse 2 tells us that he was able to give much exhortation to the churches there in Macedonia. In other words, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. So he's there, and he gives much exhortation, and it seems like a failure for Paul on the Corinthian front, but it's a triumph in Christ for the churches of Macedonia because Paul's just letting Christ's leadership be sufficient. He didn't let his concerns and insufficiency to accomplish anything else in Corinth hinder him from ministering in Macedonia. And the Lord is using Paul's hardship, and he's using Paul's troubled heart for his own glory and for the encouragement of the churches. And that's what he means by, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Pantote, that's the Greek adverb, pantote, always, that's forever. If we're following his lead, then we'll always be led in triumph. We may not be able to see it, we may not be able to feel like it, but that word is so wonderful. He always leads us in triumph. You know, the same word we see twice in Hebrews 7.25. This is a great passage. Therefore, he is able to save forever, there's our word, in adjective form, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the adverb form of the same verb, the same word. So just like we can rely on our faithful God to save forever those that he saves, and just like we can be assured that he always lives to make intercession for those who are his, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he, here it is, he always leads us in triumph. One verb in the Greek language, those three words, four words, present active participle, it's a verb, it's functioning as an adjective. So to lead in triumph was typically used of the conqueror with reference to the vanquished. So anytime you were led in triumph, it was over someone. But in this reference, I think it's likely referring to, uh, to a reference of the Roman triumph entry into the city. Uh, on such occasions, the general sons and various officers rode behind the chariot. So those who are led are, are not captives exposed to humiliation, but are displays as the glory and the devoted subjects of him who leads. So they have the honor of being led by the victor. So that's what Christ is doing. That's what makes it so satisfying here in context. This victorious leading, this leading in triumph has to do with you in ministry. As you follow Christ's leadership and you understand that he's sufficient to lead and you might not feel like you're accomplishing much, but you're going to be faithful to do the things you know you're supposed to do, we have that promise. He always leads in triumph. And who's the, who's the victor? Who, who's that? That last part of the phrase, in Christ. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So it's this idea that Jesus leads us about here and there and displays us to the world. Paul's thankful for the privilege of belonging to the ranks of the sovereign Lord. You know, if you look at Paul's life, you just think how difficult it was and how much hardship he endured. And, you know, he just, he revealed that heart to uh, this church right here. It's like, listen, you know, you know what it was like talking with you before, you know, in this, and the first two letters previous to this one, the severe letter. You know, you know what it's like. You know what your heart was like. You know what, where I was. You know you didn't respond to me. And yet, I, I understand that I always get led in victory in Christ. 
As I followed Christ's leadership, I went on to Troas and I spoke the truth there. I went on to Macedonia and I encouraged the churches there. You know, I, I did it for the gospel of Christ because that hasn't changed. When I don't know what to do, I'm just going to do these things because Christ is leading and he's the one accomplishing anything of value and anything eternal. So he's just thankful for the privilege of belonging to the ranks of the sovereign Lord, the privilege of marching behind the commander-in-chief of the universe, you know, in a parade as one of his lieutenants. You know, the privilege of belonging to a victorious troop, you know, the privilege of being under that kind of leadership, a leader who always leads in victory. No wasted journeys, no wasted hardship, no wasted sorrow, see, no wasted effort. The privilege of being chosen by God to be a soldier of Christ, to bear his name, to wear his uniform, to serve his cause. See, that's you. That's me. See? We are insufficient to the task of ministry, and the sooner we realize that, the better, because then the power of Christ can work through us. See? Christ is always more than sufficient. And so he gets the glory for the successes in ministry. And ministry led by Christ is always accomplishing what God desires. You know, who's the one who said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Who said that? Jesus did. Are you building this church? No, you're not. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Are you working? Yes. Through Christ's power in you? Yes. Does it always look like you're winning every battle? No. All the little skirmishes along the way, does it always look like he came out on top? No. But if you're with him, you know you're not building the church. He's building the church. You're part of the triumph. And we don't have to win every little struggle you know, along the way. It's enough to know that we'll be triumph in the end and enough to know that we'll be there as part of the marching army, part of the lieutenants of Christ in the day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Someday that's actually going to occur, and all the names will be given back to the right people, and all the, all the people who are supposed to rule will be there, see, and all the correct accolades will be given to the correct people, all that, you get to be in that throng, see. You follow, Christ's leadership is sufficient, you do what you're supposed to do, faithfully, empowered by him, and then at the end, you get to walk in triumph, see. You know, we're not relying on our own planning, our own estimation of whether we, what we did amounted to everything, you know, somehow playing on our own self-esteem. Did anybody even hear that message? You know, is anybody even listening to what we say? You know, I was in youth ministry for many, many years, a very large youth group down in South Florida. You know, and I get down on Wednesday was our big group. We had 80 plus kids, you know, from high school coming over and they're all sitting there, you know, you're talking and some of them are flipping you off and you're behind your back and some of them are doing other stuff. And some of them are coming on drugs, or whatever. And you just get all done with your night. You're just like, did anybody listen to a single blessed thing that I said tonight? You know, you, you, if you think about yourself, you're thinking, that was a complete waste of time. Not a complete waste of time. See, it's, it's, it's not your job to change their heart. It's your job to be faithful, to be empowered by Christ, to do what you're supposed to do, continue to discharge that, that duty that you have. Just find your faithfulness and get in that and keep going. See, and not rely on your own planning. And not estimating whether you, what you did amounted to anything. See, God always leads in triumph those who love and rely on Christ. Not only that, in verse 14, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. This is a pretty cool place to be, I would think. And those are such great words. They find their context in the same victorious processional. Along with the conqueror and all that serve in his army are those that bear the incense and they bear the flowers. So part of this, part of this procession, part of this parade as it comes through the city are some who have incense and some who bear flowers. And so everyone can see the celebration. They can smell the wonderful fragrance of victory. And it's really marvelous imagery. You know, so this principle number five, those who find their sufficiency in Jesus are made to be the very fragrance of Christ to the world. You get to be the very fragrance of Christ to the world. 
Those who know that when they're weak, then they're strong. He makes them a wonderful aroma of Christ. See, are you that? Do they smell Jesus when you're there? He views their commitment to the gospel as beautiful. He lets them adorn the already marvelous gospel with hard work, and he lets them be the fragrance of Christ. When God planned to manifest the knowledge of Christ in every place and send forth the sweet aroma, the fragrance of the gospel, he planned to do it through us. Did we deserve that honor? No. And Paul never got over that. Paul never got over that. All the ministry is from God, all the results are from God, and he works it out in his own timing and for his own glory. Remember, if dependence is the goal, then inadequacy and weakness are the advantages. Now, Paul instructs the church further by showing that he, in his weakness and insufficiency, that he is sufficient in the word of God. This is one of my favorite parts in all of the scriptures, just because we find it so little anymore in the churches. I think that you'll be encouraged here, particularly if you look to the Word, when you're, ready, when you're asked to speak, you're asked to give a message, and you look to the Word, and you read the Word, and you give the Word out, and you give the sense of the Word, and you're doing exactly what the Lord wants you to do. I think you'll see this as we go through. But look at verse 15, if you would. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, To the one, an aroma from death to death, and to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now let's look at verse 15 for a moment. Kind of break that down if you would. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And this is really a subtle shift in emphasis. Catch this. So you are a fragrance of Christ to the world. And then he shifts here. And this is, a very, this is a very important, I think, shift, and you, I want you to grab the nuance. We are the fragrance of Christ to whom? We're the fragrance of Christ to whom? Not just to the world. What's it say? We are the fragrance of Christ to God himself. We're the fragrance of Christ to God. So using that same Romans imagery of this victorious parade, catch this. Everyone around could see the people marching, Okay. And everyone around could smell the wonderful smell of flowers and incense. And a believer reliant on Christ's power is made to be that aroma of salvation in every place. Okay, we understand that. But Paul says that, this is number six, okay, catch this. Those who find their sufficiency in Jesus are made to be the very fragrance of Christ to God himself. So it's not just the people of the city who smell the aroma of victory, okay? The emperor sees the sights of victory and smells the aroma of victory, doesn't he? It's not just the sweet aroma to the troops who followed their general to victory. It's not just a sweet uh, aroma to people everywhere in the city, see. Even in this illustration, the emperor smells this wonderful smell, whom, obviously, in this Roman procession, is the one it's focused on, right? I mean, the city gets the benefit, and certainly it's, it's glory to those who follow the general to, lead, to, to victory. But who really is the victory walk for? It's for the emperor, right? He's the one in charge. He's the one who gets honor, you know, and, and so, you know, Obviously, it's far more important to honor, and it points incomparably to God himself. God is the one who ultimately is the audience. And so Paul doesn't want to skip over that. And I think they could add a principle 
here, as before we move on from this phrase, those who know they're insufficient to the task of ministry know that God is their most important audience. And, and we could go through that numerous places in Scripture and realize that as you teach the Word of God and all those kinds of things, the most important audience is not people. The most important thing you should be thinking about as you lead, be not many teachers, for those of the greater condemnation, that what you should be thinking about is who ultimately are you representing, see? And as we look at those three verses, we can see that our audience of one is pleased to the extent that we're sufficient in his word, right? We don't peddle the word, but we deliver the word as through Christ. See, it, it, it can be easy to get that confused and forget that Christ is present in the church meetings and the angels are looking in and God's word is forever settled in heaven. And, and Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous utterances uh, is everlasting. You know, Psalm 138, 2. And, and he has magnified his word according to all his name. How important is the word of God as you do the ministry God has given you? It is of preeminent importance, okay? Don't pretend like you're teaching the word if you have something to say and you're just looking at the word to try to, try to fill in behind what you're trying to say, okay? We, the, the, the wrong way to, to accomplish a message is to figure out what, I, what do I want to talk about today? That's not where you start. You know, young preachers ask me all the time, so how do you know what to talk about? Well, I'm reading daily through the Word of God, and when I'm learning from the Word of God, that becomes, you know, our church is held captive to what I'm learning. Let's just start and go through the Word of God and let Him lead us the directions we want to go. Listen, there are many times, and you know this because you've been with me uh, almost 10 years now, you know this. Many times I've told you I would prefer not to pre preach certain passages. They're not ones I would have landed on and said, this is what we're going to teach today. They're uncomfortable for me, not necessarily because they're not understandable, although there are some that are difficult to understand. But they're uncomfortable because they're awkward. They're either awkward because they're talking about me and something I have to do and something you have to do, or they're awkward for any other reason. But if you just work through the letter, you don't really have the choice, do you? When you get to it, you go through it. And so you get to hear stuff that other churches never hear because those pastors just teach topically. They just teach what they want to teach about. And so this is super important. You know, it's easy to get confused about what's important in the message. But if, you know, God's word is forever settled in heaven and the sum of his word is truth and every one of his righteous ordinances is everlasting and he has magnified his word according to all of his name, then that's pretty sobering, isn't it? And it should be. When you're ministering, it's easy to look out at all the ones that are listening and focus on them and forget that we don't really ultimately minister to men and women, do we? I mean, we give out the word of God to them, we give the gospel to them, but ultimately it's God who's the audience, and as we faithfully do that, that becomes a very pleasing aroma of Christ to him, see? And that's a great refocus. And then Paul says that among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing... For we're the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's pleasing to God when it goes out among those who are being saved. Sozo minois, that's the verb sozo, to save, present passive participle, so functioning as a verbal adjective. So, in other words, describing the redeemed as being saved. They have been justified, they are being sanctified, they will be glorified. So it's always a process, as Scripture describes salvation, although you are completely saved and secure, Scripture always describes that as, as, as continuous action because the Lord is sanctifying you and he will glorify you, all right? And so the idea then is it's pleasing to God and aroma to God when it goes out among those who are being saved. They've been justified, and when the word goes out to the redeemed, it's, it's pleasing aroma to God, and also it's pleasing to God when it goes out among those who are perishing, 
apoloimenoi, present middle participle. Again, functioning as a verbal adjective. So describing the current state of the unredeemed. It's pleasing to God, a pleasing aroma to God as you give the word out to those who are redeemed and to those who are perishing. It's the state of ruin that is the present, current state of the unredeemed. Destruction with every deed, with every thought, they participate in it. It's middle, so they're participating in it. Everything that they do that's displeasing to God, every time they say something that's pleasing to God, every time they, every action, it's part of their ruin, it's part of their destruction. They're already under a curse, they're already in a state of ruin, and they participate regularly as they do the things that Scripture says not to do and don't do the things Scripture says to do. Every deed, every thought, everything, they participate in it. So it's pleasing to God for the word to go out, and it's an aroma to him of Christ when the word goes out to those who are redeemed and when the word goes out to those who are the damned, the second death. So, so back to the aroma of this procession. So the aroma of the parade comes to those who are entering into the triumph, but the same smell, catch it, the same smell would come to the prisoners headed to prison and death, wouldn't it? I mean, as this victorious procession is walking through and the Lord's leading those who follow him in, in glorious victory, that, that smell and all the sounds and whatever, that's going to come to the ear and to the nose of those who are perishing too, won't it? I mean, those who are prisoners, those who are headed to death, they're going to smell it too. And can I tell you that, according to this, both of those situations are pleasing to God? They're both pleasing to God. John Calvin said, quote, the force of the gospel is such that it is never preached in vain it is effectual, leading either to life or to death, end quote. I think that's a, that's a pretty important thing to remember. According to Paul, when our sufficiency is in the word of God, we are an aroma of Christ to God. Paul can describe himself in these terms because by the preaching of God's word, verse 17, he spreads abroad the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. So Paul extends the metaphor to describe the two possible responses to ones who are counting on the sufficiency of the word of God by adding the words among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You give out the word and both of those things are going on at the same time. The smell of incense, a burnt to the gods in a Roman triumphal procession would have been, had a different connotation for different people, wouldn't it? And so he makes this very connection. So this Roman tri uh, triumphal procession and you smell this incense, you smell the flowers and those who, are, those who are perishing, those who are in prison, those who are headed to death, it means a whole different thing than it means to those who are walking along in the parade being honored. But it comes to both, and it's appropriate for both. See. So verse 16 says, To the one, catch it, an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. So number eight, finding sufficiency in the word of God allows the Lord to accomplish, catch it, beloved, all he wishes to accomplish in the lives of people. Okay? When you eschew the word of God and you're just doing what you want to do and just speaking what you want to say and somehow topically thinking you're accomplishing anything for the kingdom, you are missing the opportunity for the Lord to accomplish all his own wishes in, 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 in the lives of every person. Okay? His word is made and equipped to do that. When you rely on that, then you are effective for the kingdom. The more you get away from it, the less effective for the kingdom you're going to be. For the victorious general and his soldiers, and for the welcoming crowds, the aroma would be associated with the joy of victory. And everybody's cheering, everybody's uh, loving all of this, but for the prisoners of war, the aroma could only have, uh, be associated with the fate of slavery, or the fate of death which awaited him. And both of those things were appropriate. And so using that illustration, then the preaching of the gospel would be a fragrance from life to life to those who believe, but a fragrance from death to death, death to those who refuse to obey it. It's the same smell. But it's a smell of death to those who refuse to believe it. Is it any wonder as you witness to people that they're hostile? But the word of God is powerful and quick and sharper than a two-edged sword. 
right? And it's able to pierce and divide the soul and spirit and joint and marrow and, and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You still give it. And the more you give it, the more effective you're going to be. And the more that aroma comes up of Christ to God because of what you're doing. Your sufficiency is in the word. Your sufficiency is in his leadership. Your sufficiency is in the word. And so, sometimes when we give the message, we may not think that we achieve the results we wanted to achieve. Sometimes our messages aren't as often an aroma from life to life as we would wish, right? Sometimes we get drawn over, but even when they fail to be an aroma of life to life, they please God by being an aroma of death unto death. And that may be hard to hear in an age of feel-good pulpits. But both of those things are pleasing to the Lord and the aroma of Christ to him. And you know, in the age of feel-good pulpits, it's important to remember that God is willing to demonstrate his wrath. You know, Romans chapter 9, verse 22 says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, so what is God willing to do? He's willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. He's willing to do that. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In other words, he didn't, didn't enter into wrath with him. What if he endured with much patience those who deserved his wrath and those who deserved uh, his power demonstrated on them? And he did it to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared for beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. You know, the Lord is willing to make his wrath known on those who rejected him, and he's willing to make known the riches of his glory through his mercy, both. He's willing to do both of those things. And what if God, willing to demonstrate himself, chooses to punish sinners? Can we question that? That's part of, that's part of his glory too, isn't it? Part of his nature. He doesn't have any pleasure in it, and yet he, ex he expresses who he is when he does it, right? I'm convinced that we don't evaluate ourselves correctly, and we might evaluate our ministry on how many people come to Christ, perhaps, or other, other ways of evaluating. And God may be just evaluating it very simply on the dual criteria of unto life or unto death. Was the message from the word life to life? Was the message from the word death to death? How effective were you in doing that? And maybe not so complex as we think it needs to be. You know, Isaiah 55, 11 says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It'll not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. Does that surprise you, beloved? That should not surprise you at all. That the Lord's word is powerful to do what he sent it to do. Life unto life, to encourage those who are, who are being saved onto further faithfulness and sincerity and, and dedication. Death to death, to, to pronounce the curse and make it clear where you're headed and what's going to happen. Both of those are okay. And I think maybe the Lord just very simply evaluates the messages that way. How effective was it for either of those two things? Those who count on the sufficiency of the word of God have that great hope, see? That the word never returns void. It always accomplishes what he desires and doesn't come back without succeeding in the matter for which he sent it, see? So as we go verse by verse through the letters, I don't have to worry about whether or not that, I, that particularly applied to you or to me or whatever, was it prophylactic or was it dealing with a problem. I, I just give the word out as faithfully as I can, with as least interruptions personally, with my own mannerisms as I can, so that you only focus on the Word of God and you walk out of here thinking how great He is or how much you've got to get your act together or how much He's done for you in salvation or that you're not saved. See, 
That's, that's really all that, it's all that matters. Your sufficiency is in the word of Christ. Your sufficiency is in his leadership, see? Just do the things you're supposed to do. You know, in a, in a few weeks, we're going to have Don Sunshine here. He's going to teach you um, on the Go Mad training about making a difference and being an evangelist. You know, that's just part of being sufficient in Christ, okay? You, you may not know exactly what always to do in ministry, but you do know you need to be doing that, okay? And that just demonstrates that you're insufficient to the task of eternal things, and when you give out the gospel, you realize he's sufficient in, in that task. See. And if the word of God is, is being taught, then every time we do it, one of these two great things is occurring. There's life unto life, and death unto death taking place, and God's at work, and God is pleased. And that is an aroma of Christ to him. You become the aroma of a Christ to God when you do those things, see. And again, we noted earlier that that's why some will never really be useful to God because they think, catch this, and maybe you've drawn into it, they think their human wisdom and their antidotes and their experiences and their personality or whatever will result in ministry success in God's eyes. And you've heard many preachers that, that way, haven't you? Their antidotes, their little clever stories, their videos, whatever, somehow that's going to be effective for the kingdom. That is not effective for the kingdom, okay? The more you rely on the sufficiency of God's word and you just go through it, the more effective for the kingdom you'll be. The more you rely on your little antidotes and your life experiences and whatever, and your oratory ability or whatever it is, see, the less effective you're going to be. See? That's why some will never be faithful and, and never be effective for the kingdom. So people do that and then they resist the simple teaching of the word of God which is the Roma of Christ to God and to the world. See. Then Paul finishes verse 16, and he reiterates this thesis, which is really our main focus we've seen over and over again, and we're going to close with this too this morning. So we're about out of time. So what's he say? You know, sufficiency in Jesus, following his leadership, sufficiency in the word of God. And then he says this, who is adequate for these things? Again, it just kind of reiterates, am I doing this on my own? No. Who's competent? Who's capable? Who has sufficient human ability? That's the issue, isn't it? Right? That's the rhetorical question. What's the answer? No one. No one does. Who has what it takes in himself to render service to the Almighty God? No one. Who has the ability to, and discernment and wisdom to make the word of an aroma from life to life or death to death? Do you? Do I? Can you discern that in the hearts of people? We cannot. Can we discern whether they need life unto life or death unto death? No. Are we able to, to rightly divide the word in such a way that we'll give it out precisely what's needed? No. You're supposed to rightly divide the word. You're supposed to be an under, under rower, right? A table waiter. Take what's on in the kitchen that the Lord prepares and deliver it just like it is without any modification, right? And then you let the Lord do the work through it. See, but are you sufficient to discern between those two things? No. Am I? No. Who's adequate for those things? No one. We just faithfully rely on the word of God to do its work, see? Who has what it takes to influence a world for, for eternity? We don't. Who has what it takes to be triumphant? Who? Nobody. Nobody in his own strength. Absolutely no one does. Sufficiency in Christ, relying on his direction, his leadership, sufficiency in the word of Christ, which we'll finish up next week. It's the last part about peddling the word. I, I love that passage. So much richness there. We're going to look at that. Who, has, who, has, who is adequate for these things? No one. Our only adequacy comes through Christ. You know, understanding that weakness is an advantage. See, For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm okay with that, Paul says. And what a privilege it is to live a life, beloved, that renders a duty that pleases 
God, to render a duty that influences others for Christ. That's a sweet aroma of saving truth to everyone. What a privilege it is to know that we triumph in Christ, regardless of the hardships, the difficult things that the Lord takes us through, whatever it may be, you're going to get to walk in a triumphal parade with all the aroma and the, and the beauty and everything, more than conquerors. What a privilege it is to be associated with the King of Kings and always led by Him. What a privilege it is to those of us who are utterly unworthy and completely insufficient to do it. And yet that is your future. And that's your current position now as you rely on the leadership of Christ and get, get rid of this self-sufficiency that just carries from the world right into the church and just realize your effectiveness in ministry is going to be as a result of you submitting and relinquishing in these things. All right? Let's uh, bow, be dismissed in a word of prayer, a few announcements, and we'll be out of here. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to uh, be in your word again. What a joy it is to be back together with, with family, uh, to be able to speak frankly from your word, to know that you go out and you accomplish exactly what you want to accomplish, and it returns exactly like you want it to return, doing what you wanted it to do. Lord, I pray that, um, that we'll take away, you know, all my distractions, that you will, your word will be clearly imprinted on the hearts of these folks, that they might understand what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and not be stamped in the world's image. And right away, the first step was to be not to consider ourselves, ourselves more importantly than we should. Father, I pray that uh, we'll be found following your leadership and in, in just giving out the gospel. We're found in your leadership and... In, in, um, uh, pouring ourselves into the people that you give us, not worried about whether or not we've accomplished what we would hope to accomplish or whatever, but just being faithful over the long haul. Help us to understand that with ministry comes resistance. With ministry comes difficulty and hardship, and you use that for your own glory. And the comfort that we receive uh, from you is comfort we give to others. Many are the troubles of, those who are, uh, of Christ to those who follow him, and many are the comforts too. The comforts of Christ belong to us too. So, Lord, I just pray we'll be those kinds of folks. Thank you for the time we could be in your word today. Thank you for the time we could, we could sing and proclaim these wonderful things about you, that we could join together in prayer, submitting ourselves to you and your authority, that we could give of what we have, knowing that you've given all of it to us. And we just we, we recognize and show you that when we give, that you've given us everything. Thank you for these folks, Father. Thank you for many who serve. Thank you for those who are serving now downstairs and being part of, of giving, letting your kingdom grow through sufficiency in your leadership and your word. Encourage us along these lines, Father. Help us to be these kinds of people. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.